You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 52. Thank you this week goes out to Victor from Australia for his donation. Thank you for your support, Victor. For the listeners who follow the show on Facebook, you may have seen my somewhat lengthy list of 1916 sources, the cost of which make me more and more thankful for donations when they come in. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving it a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great way to spread the word about the show, and I would be very grateful. Last week, we discussed the build-up to the fall offensives on the Western Front. The French hoped to launch two attacks, one in Artois and one in Champagne. These attacks would be massive, the largest of 1915, and their goals were to capture Vimy Ridge in Artois and to capture valuable railway junctions in Champagne. This would be the Second Battle of Champagne and the Third Battle of Artois. Today we will look at how these offensives went after they were launched in September 1915. This week we will also be focusing on the French actions specifically, while next week we will spend the entire episode examining the British efforts at Luce. Without further delay, let's jump in. In Champagne, there would be 27 divisions attacking. To achieve this number, Joffre had to shuffle troops all around the front to free up the 2nd Army, commanded by General Pétain who would be moved into Champagne and put under the command of General Cassinol for the attack. Facing these 27 divisions would be just 7 German divisions, which were covering a front of 42 kilometers. I'm not sure on the exact math of how thinly stretched they were, but very probably fits the bill here. The French planned to launch attacks very similar to the previous attempts, just on a larger area and with more men. Cassinol sought to punch a hole through the German front, that would be at least 12 kilometers in depth on a front of 28 kilometers wide. He believed that this was the only way that he could make a hole big enough that he would be safe to move in his reinforcements without interference from German artillery. He hoped that if this 12 kilometer by 28 kilometer hole could be created by the set of troops in the attack, that he would be able to constantly feed in more troops to keep it going. Part of this plan was to use a very strong second wave of troops, to hopefully keep the advance going. This second wave wouldn't be sent forward until the first line of German trenches had been secured by the first wave of troops. The hope was that the second wave wouldn't be as entangled in the first German line and would provide the momentum necessary to keep the attack going into the second German line. The first attacks would be centered on Perths, just like before, and would be launched by the 4th and 2nd armies, under General de Langle and General Pétain. Backing them up would be over 2,000 pieces of artillery, including 750 heavy guns. 
these guns would launch a long bombardment prior to the attack, a bombardment which would include asphyxiating gas rounds. In the north, in Artois, there would be 19 infantry divisions attacking. The most important of these troops were the men of the 10th Army, commanded by General de Ball. The army was in prime position to take Vimy Ridge, and was at most 1,200 meters from the top of said ridge. Certainly, this was within striking distance. Foch outlined his plans on July 15th to Diabal with objectives like in previous battles, capture some of the ridge, and then push the Germans off of the rest of it. One thing that wasn't similar to the previous attacks was the number of men. This time, there would be less than during the second battle, in the spring. Durabal was concerned about this fact, that he had the same objectives, but he was given less men to try and achieve them. He would write to Joffre and Foch, quote, It is my duty to call to your attention the reduction of means at my disposal, but the tasks remain the same, an arduous effort against an enemy warned and on guard. This situation will necessitate considerable and prolonged efforts, and will result in great losses among the attacking infantry, end quote. Foch and Joffre disagreed, believing Dierbal to have more than enough troops to accomplish the goals set before him. In fact, as Foch and Dierbal continued into detailed planning, the front on which the 10th Army would be attacking on grew and would end up being a front of 32 kilometers, and this with just 19 divisions at his disposal. For those keeping track, this meant that there were less troops in Artois attacking on a wider front than in Champagne so not a great recipe for success in a war where concentration of strength was so important. They would also have much less artillery, around half as much, with just a thousand guns to back them up. I have said from the beginning that these attacks occurred on September 25th, but that is not when they were originally scheduled to occur. It was originally supposed to begin on September the 8th, but it slipped to the 15th and then to the 25th. The biggest problem for the French was getting Patan's army ready to go in Champagne. It is no small thing to get an army off the line, move it to another part of the front, and then get it all ready to go on the attack. During all of this delay, the French tried to find a way to hide their preparations, and a lot of these efforts revolved around Patan's army. Patan was a rising star on the French side, and the Germans knew that as well as anybody else which made his army, when it went missing from the front, all the more important, because the question became where it was going, because it was very likely that wherever that was would be the location of an attack. The French tried to get the Germans to believe that the attack was happening far to the north, by having Patan noticeably visit those areas. This ruse doesn't seem to have worked very well, though. It seems that the weight of the preparations occurring in Artois and Champagne were such that the Germans rightfully saw through the ruse. Before the attack would begin, Joffre would send a note to the generals involved, with the request to send it down to his men. Quote, Three quarters of all French forces will participate in the battle. They will be supported by 2,000 heavy artillery pieces and 3,000 field pieces, for which the provision of munitions surpasses greatly those at the beginning of the war. Every chance of success exists, particularly if one remembers that our recent attack near Arras made by 15 divisions and 300 heavy pieces, was close to a success. End quote. On the German side, they had continued to improve their defenses along the entire front during the summer. This included deeper, stronger dugouts with more concrete, more wire, and more strong points for machine guns. 
With the signs of the coming attack in Champagne-Artois, they began beefing up their defenses in these two regions. Then, once it was delayed for almost an entire month, they used that time well to further improve their defenses. During the summer of 1915, the Germans were also putting a much greater emphasis on defense in depth, with fortifications of up to three miles behind the front line. This meant that while it might be easier for the attacks to take the first set of trenches, it would be much harder for them to break all the way through. Hopefully, they would just make it through the first line, but no further. The Germans were also refining their artillery attack. They planned several different types of bombardments to be used during the battle. While there was the bombardment of the front right before the attack, which was standard and had been since the start of the war, after the attack had started, the German artillery's goal wasn't just to focus on the attackers that had moved forward, but instead to create a curtain of steel in no man's land. This was designed to cut off any of the surviving attackers from getting reinforcements or being able to retreat to their own lines. All of these new tactics would come into play in the upcoming battle. At 9 a.m. on September 25th, the artillery firing on the line at Champagne reached their crescendo. After days of firing, all of the guns were now firing at maximum rounds per minute, and for 15 minutes, this firing rate continued. At 9.15 a.m., the men began their attack. All of the soldiers of the first wave surged forward, and there are even some reports, but I'm not sure I believe them, of some French regiments marching forward with flags flying and their bands playing. As they moved forward, they quickly overran the first line of trenches that had been most affected by the bombardment, and things were, up to this point, going quite well. The slim resistance put forward by the German defenders of the first few lines of trenches meant that the action was going just as well as anyone on the French side could have expected. There are also some reports of French artillery dropping on the second line of German trenches, just as the French troops took them away from the German defenders. This is the best example of how well the attack was going so far. The pre-planned artillery fire was designed to move to the second line to soften it up before the attack was made. The fact that that attack was hitting those trenches right as the artillery was, which, while tragic due to the friendly fire incident, meant that things were going very well. Along most of the front, the French had advanced up to four kilometers through trenches that had been completely wrecked by artillery. On the German side, there was some real panic at this point that the French were going to break through, even as the attack reached the second set of trenches. Apparently, Falkenhayn was in the area around this time, and after the commander of the German 3rd Army began to consider a retreat, he was relieved on the spot. His replacement was ordered by Falkenhayn to hold the second set of trenches at all costs. Falkenhayn was also ordering reinforcements into the area and they were now converging from all directions. He knew that if the French were slowed down for another day, the crisis would be passed. The advance had brought the French troops to the second set of German trenches, and also to the limit of their pre-battle artillery preparation, which had caused such desolation to the first set of trenches. The second set of trenches had not been hit as hard by this barrage, and were now filled with German reserves who had been moved forward to meet the French and against these reserves, the French attack ground to a quick halt. The French artillery just wasn't able to do enough damage at this distance to keep the attack going. As the 25th and the first day of the attack ended, Casanal moved forward the 6th Corps into the area of the greatest advance. 
Unfortunately for these troops making their way forward, and for all of the troops on the front during the evening, it began to rain, and would continue to rain off and on for the next several days, making fighting that much more difficult. On the next day, the French attackers were in a situation that was very different than what they had experienced the day before. Instead of pulverized trenches that were manned only by stunned defenders, they were instead facing German trenches that were well-manned, well-armed, and barely touched by artillery fire. The Germans were also 100% ready for the French, and that included their artillery. Even with the greater difficulties facing the French troops, they launched multiple attacks throughout the day. Some of these attacks even managed to reach the German lines, but they were never had the strength to hold on to their gains against German resistance. The problem, beyond the men and machine guns and artillery, was the fields of barbed wire that the Germans had prepared in front of their second defensive line. During the first days of the attacks, the barbed wire had been shattered by artillery, making it easy to pass through. But here, that was not the case, and the French had to slowly find their way through it. When the 26th ended, the French were in much the same place as they had been when it had began. During the night, artillery was moved forward in preparation for attacks the next day, but the attacks on the 27th would be even less successful than those on the 26th. Before the next attacks on the 28th, Patan would make his first mark upon the battle. He did this by refusing to attack with the men currently in the line on the 28th, men that had been attacking for three days. He would say of these men, quote, Their losses have been considerable, their leaders have for the most part disappeared, and their offensive value is greatly reduced. End quote. After Patan made his refusal, he was visited by none other than Joffre himself who appeared personally at Patan's headquarters to order him to continue the attack. Also on the 28th, Robert Doughty, in his book Pyrrhic Victory, describes a sad story of misinformation. During the night, there was a false report that reached Casanova's headquarters that a breakthrough that had been achieved on the 4th Army's sector. Believing that this was his chance, Casanova ordered forward the 6th and 7th Corps, forward into a night attack to take advantage of the situation. Their goal was to widen the non-existent breach, and their attacks failed horribly, with heavy, heavy losses. To quote Dowdy on what happened next, quote, For reasons that are incomprehensible, the false information became even more exaggerated. After receiving reports that the breach had been enlarged, Castelnau reported to Joffre on the 29th that three infantry divisions had passed through the opening, end quote. It wasn't until late on the 29th that Casanova learned the truth, that there was no breach in the line, and that all the attacks had failed. Casanova, undeterred, planned another attack for the 30th, but again Patan refused to launch the attack. In five days of fighting, the French had accomplished quite a bit on the first day, but very little since. There would be a resumption of the attacks in October, but first let's check in with what was happening in Artois. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. 
Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. In Artois, with so many previous attempts by the French, and with the importance of Vimy Ridge, the Germans had been preparing their defenses since the spring attacks had ended. There were more trenches in the huge network of defenses on the ridge. These included fields of barbed wire, more machine gun nests, more hardened shelters, everything a German soldier could ask for. While the defenses were strong, they were very thin on troops to man them and this meant that there were just a few divisions to defend the area against the French attacks. The artillery fire in Artois began a week before the attack, with the bombardment starting on the 18th on some parts of the front. For an entire week, the fire would continue until the attack began at 12.25pm on the 25th. In The Great War, Peter Hart quotes Sergeant Emile Morin with this quote, Without hesitation we leapt over the parapet. Immediately, men were hit and fell back heavily into the trench. Straining every sinew, the soldiers threw themselves towards the enemy, screaming. The bullets came from everywhere. I hear the rattle in my ears, an endless banging. The barrage of artillery shells falls close around us. The noise was indescribable. Terrifying explosions erupt everywhere, and acrid smoke rises up. End quote. Much like in Champagne, the initial onrush of French troops managed to capture the first German trench in several places. In some places, they were even able to make it to the top of the ridge. Unfortunately, also much like in Champagne, nowhere were the French able to make it through the second set of German trenches. The infantry that advanced the furthest often found themselves cut off and quickly driven back by German counterattacks. All of the real gains for the day were made on the north side of the attacks, which were driving towards Juchet. On the south side of the attack, the troops were often pushed back to their starting points by the end of the day. Late in the afternoon, it also began to rain, just like it did in Champagne, which made it more difficult to support the troops as they advanced, and especially to support the troops that had advanced the furthest. With the initial attacks either over or bogging down, Durbal switched his attention to what he planned to do the next day to follow them up. He wanted to pursue attacks only in the north, where the successes had been, and Foch agreed with this. So the next day, the attacks resumed at 1.10pm, and again, there were some early successes. Sushi was captured, and there were a few small gains made against the ridge. Even though the attacks had been successful, Durbal and Foch had used the absolute last of their resources to make it happen, and now they needed help from Joffre. They needed more men, and they needed more artillery ammunition. When they sent a letter to Joffre asking for these pieces of assistance, the message that was sent back to them said that there weren't enough resources to allow it. Joffre would tell them, quote, Stop the attacks of the 10th Army, but avoid giving the British the impression that we are letting them attack alone. The attack of the 10th Army may succeed, but this will be at the price of new quantities of munitions and new divisions that the commander-in-chief cannot provide now because they are needed elsewhere to exploit success. End quote. Essentially, Joffre was putting the attacks in Champagne and their need for resources above the attacks in Artois. This was in accordance with the plan, 
the attacks in Artois were always supposed to be a secondary attack. But, and this was important, the deal with the British was that they would attack as long as the French did so in Artois. So Joffre needed the French troops in Artois to at least appear to be continuing the attack so that the British would also continue, which would theoretically help the main French effort in Champagne. On the 27th, the French attacked again, with what little resources they had, and this meant that only two corps of troops on a small front were sent into the attack. This prompted the British to demand more support from the French in Artois, and they sent a message directly to Joffre, saying that if the French didn't up their game, then they were going to halt their attacks. Foch then met with Sir John French, to guarantee that the French would keep up the pressure on their front, and that they would even bring in troops from the south to free up a British division currently holding the line so that it could be used in further attacks. On the night of the 27th, after the failure of the earlier attacks, there was a great French success with the capture, by night attack, of Hill 140 and 119. These were the highest points on Vimy Ridge, and would have been a great prize for the French to capture. The Germans knew of their importance, and stopped at nothing to try and get them back. Attack after attack, followed by constant artillery fire on the French forces at the top of the hill, finally drove them off. On the 29th, Foch and French met again to discuss further attacks. They both agreed to continue, with the caveat that they would both need to rest their men for a few days and move in more material that was necessary to continue. We will catch back up with the October attacks in Artois after we look at the October attacks in Champagne. After the September attacks in Champagne had been stopped, Casanova knew that he had to give his troops a breather and take some time to bring in reinforcements before continuing. Joffre hesitated when it came to giving more resources to Casanova, and even considered calling off all of the attacks. Eventually, he did decide to move in more troops to Champagne and to give Kasanov more artillery ammunition. But these shells came with a very important disclaimer. They were the last ammunition that Joffre had. The supply depots were now empty. Realizing that his resources were much smaller now, Kasanov shrunk his front to where he would just attack on 12 kilometers. And he also shortened his goals. The goal would be now to push the German line back in just 3 kilometers. Early on the morning of October the 4th, the artillery preparations started, and it continued until October the 6th, when the attacks were launched. This attack would be notable for the largest usage of a creeping barrage up to this point in the war. This involved artillery slowly moving forward right in front of the French infantry, or at least that was the goal. At this point in the war, they were still having a lot of issues getting the speed of advance just right and making sure that the speed was adjusted based on the success or failure of the infantry. When the French attacked a bit before 5.30 in the morning, they ran into a wall of German-made steel. There was more German artillery to meet the attack than there had been on the first day of attacks back in September, and this meant that after a full day of attacking, the French forces under Delangle and Patan accomplished nothing. After the failure of the initial attacks, Castlenaut ordered for them to be renewed the next day, but both Delangle and Patan refused to continue. They based this refusal on the claim that it was simply impossible for the troops to gain anything by further attempts. 
Casanal, with no other option, ordered the armies to consolidate what they had gained and to launch no further offensive actions. After this order was given, Casanal wrote to Joffre, saying, quote, The operation has not succeeded. It can be resumed only after a new preparation, more complete than what had been accomplished on October 4th and 5th. End quote. On October the 7th, Joffre officially cancelled any further actions in Champagne. In Artois, the original plan had been to pause the attacks for a little over a day, and then continue them on October the 1st. As this day came and went, the level of reinforcements required just weren't able to reach the line in time, so the attack had to constantly be delayed. The first delay was primarily due to the British, since the division that the French had promised to free up had not been able to be relieved. Then the second delay was because the French insisted on capturing a small mining pit on the axis of their advance before the full renewal of the attack. There were then several more delays that pushed the attack all the way back to the October the 10th, a full nine days after it was supposed to begin. Even this date wouldn't end up being the final one. On the 9th, the Germans attacked in the area where the French and British armies came together, and they were able to push the line back a bit. This meant that some preparations for the British had to be essentially restarted, and the British attack was delayed until the 13th. The French didn't want to wait that long, though, and they decided to attack on the 11th. After an artillery bombardment that lasted just two hours, the attack went forward. As we have discussed a few times this year already, these last gasp bombardments were often short not due to any great plan, but simply because they didn't have the shells for lengthy preparations. This was the story here as well. The French would fire off in the first few hours of the attack just about one quarter the number of rounds that had been fired during a similar time frame during the September attacks. The attacks would be called off by Dearball just four hours after they began. Instead of using my own words to describe how the attack went, I will just quote from Foch's official report. Quote, Progress was almost nil and the attack did not yield the expected results. Preparation by heavy artillery, insufficient. Attack conducted by exhausted or already severely tried troops. Enemy forewarned and strongly reinforced with artillery, unleashing at the slightest indication of attack, terrible barrages. End quote. Foch wanted to try one more time for two reasons. In some places, his men were just a 100 meters from the top of the ridge. And also, the British were going to attack two days later, and he hoped that with their distraction, he may give his troops an advantage. He asked Joffre to bring him more artillery and ammunition, double the amount that he had on hand at this time. But Joffre told him no, and Joffre told him that he should consolidate whatever he had at that moment. So, on October 11th, the great French attacks of 1915 were over. Next week, we will dig deeper into how the British attacks at Luce went during the same time frame. And then during the next episode, we will look at the aftermath of the failed fall offensives before having a bit of a discussion about the Western Front as a whole in 1915. I hope you've enjoyed listening, and have a great week.